0: Greetings and welcome to episode 40 of Beyond Waxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we've reached episode 40, a great milestone. Can't imagine we'd actually, when I began all this, that I would one day reach 40 episodes, but here we are. Now, it's fitting that in our 40th episode we actually have quite a momentous seminal event, the Cultural Revolution. Okay, now with almost every single topic that I've uh, you know, brought up in this podcast, even those that are for for you know ancient Chinese history, I usually try to connect them in some way to China today or the Chinese experience today, and I try to you know make some sort of a connection where I say this is relevant because you can see its legacies here, there, or what have you. The Cultural Revolution is a little bit different. Now we're in an era in which we have a major traumatic event in which the people who participated in it. Okay, led the movement in some ways. Many of them are still alive today, All right? And not you know sort of like when we're searching for World War One veterans or something, and you find some you know uh, uh, you know decrepit one hundred and ten year old man, you're like, oh, let's get his you know a, 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 a statement about what happened in nineteen eleven. You know we're just barely clinging on to living memories. No, no, no. All right, uh, Cultural Revolution, nineteen sixty six to nineteen seventy six. All right. Do the math. If you grew up, if you were born at any point in the 1950s, then this event uh, impacted you immensely. All right, you would have been a teenager when it began. Um, Depending on when you were born, you may have been, you know, younger in your elementary school education. Maybe you're in high school, college. Regardless, these are people who now, today, in 2019, they're going to be in their 60s and 70s. Alright, not spring chickens anymore, but there's still a lot of these people alive, and they have living, visceral memories of the things that happened to them, and that they did to other people. Okay, willingly or unwillingly, brainwashed or otherwise, these things happen, they participated in them. Alright, so here, the legacy for today is very fresh. Alright, it's very real, it's not abstract in the slightest bit. Okay, Um, now... How do we begin talking about the Cultural Revolution? You know me, I always like to start with big ideas, uh, the, the big picture, and then go you know, closer and closer in to the ground level details. Alright, so the way that I'm going to talk about the Cultural Revolution is I'm going to talk about one of the central tensions that exists in early communist states. When a communist party has taken power, has taken over the reins of a country... And it's very early on, their first decade or two of power. We saw this with the Soviet Union and we see it with uh, the Chinese case as well. Um, What is the central tension? All right. Well, one of them is, is that the Communist Party, all the big ones, came to power, as I've noted before, they came to power through violence, not because they were inherently, you know, intrinsically violent people or a violent ideology, quite to the contrary, actually, Um, but because they had a hard time uh, uh, gaining support among the people who already were in power, who held the guns, uh, right, and the money and all the levers of government authority, Um, not, there's usually not a whole lot of support for communism, all right, it threatens to subvert the entire social, political, economic order. Uh, it was difficult to find mainstream supporters for such an ideology. And as we saw with both the Soviet Union and uh, in China, these communist parties came to power by opportunistically being able to take advantage of widespread chaos and a wartime situation. World War I for the Bolsheviks, uh, basically World War II and then the Chinese Civil War. For the Chinese Communists, all right. What this means is another way of saying is that the Communist parties had to spend a long time. The top leaders of the Communist Party—they um, don't just come into power a year or two after they become communists. Oftentimes, they struggle and fight and are running for their lives for years and years, sometimes decades. All right. Communist Party in China—it's founded in 19. 19- I believe it's the very first meeting is 1920, possibly 21. Anyway, it's, it's in Shanghai, early 1920s. Okay, they don't take power until 1949. That's almost 30 years. And Mao was in that movement from the beginning. In fact, many of the revolutionary leaders, the, the people's names that we're most familiar with, uh, were, 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 were there from the early to mid-1920s. Zhou Enlai, Zhu De, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, Liu Xiaoqi. These aren't Johnny-come-latelys in the 1940s. So all of them, actually, have been struggling to attain power for a very, very long time. Okay? And Mao, it's important to note, is at the top of that struggling hierarchy. He has achieved his prestige, his position, all of his comfort, whatever he's achieved in this life, has been achieved as a result of being, in his eyes and in the eyes of everyone around him, a successful revolutionary. Okay, a successful revolutionary. Now, the historian like me might look back on it and say, yeah, Mao's a good politician, but there's tons of good politicians in this world who end up meeting, uh, you know, uh, an ugly death or never manage to seize the reins of government because larger historical, social, geographical, economic, political conditions prevent that from happening. I'm definitely in that camp of historians who never looks at individuals as influencing uh, history on a very large scale. Some people do, I don't. All right, it's always bigger forces when you're looking at the big picture and talking about how the communist seize power is definitely a big picture issue for me. Okay, regardless, the perception at the time, however, is that Mao personally had a lot to do with the success of the Communist Party in 1949. Without him, it never would have happened. All right, that's important to remember because what we're, what we're setting up here is, is I'm trying to, to impart to you the idea That Mao's entire sense of self-worth, his political legitimacy, his right to rule, the fact that everyone looks at him and says, you deserve to be numero uno, derives from his perceived status as one of the most successful revolutionaries of all time. Okay? But after you seize power, the situation is very different than before you seized power. After you seize power, you're not going to fight anymore. It's not constant war like the communists have been used to doing for so many decades. War is largely over. Or it gets outsourced to the PLA, which is largely thinking about external threats on the borders. So the borders with the Soviet Union, the American imperialists, the Korean War, Vietnam. You know, that it's, it's, it's external now. It's not internal. Okay. So you're not going to be fighting a whole lot anymore. There aren't a whole lot of opportunities, to put it another way, there aren't a whole lot of opportunities to make revolution. And that's a problem. That's a problem if your entire source of political legitimacy, your right to be in power, and to enjoy the perks of power, stems from the fact that you make revolution better than anyone else has ever made revolution before. If there's no revolution to keep making after you've seized power, what right do you have to be a prominent policymaker anymore? Why not just turn you into a figurehead? Now let's let the people who really know what they're talking about take over. Let's get in the engineers, let's get in the economic policy makers, the people who are going to make five-year plans, who are going to, you know, uh, 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 draw blueprints for how much heavy industry we need, light industry, what sort of factories, you know, all these percentages, the numbers people, the economists. The people who know what the hell they're talking about when they talk about economic development. Mao doesn't know any of that. Okay. He's a great politician, but he's not a technocrat. And so what happens after 49 is that you get the creation of a party bureaucracy, a communist bureaucracy that is very privileged now because they seized power. They're very privileged. Okay, and the members of this party control all the wealth increasingly once you nationalize everything. They control all wealth that exists, even if there's no actual like money, or if there is money, but that's not the chief currency of power anymore. It's access to resources. The chief sign of your power after 49 is your access to scarce resources. Who is able to go to the cinema and watch a movie? All right, who is going to be able to eat meat every single day? in their food rations, who's going to have a nice apartment, who gets a car that picks them up to chauffeur them around, you know, these sorts of things. It's access to resources that uh, denotes wealth and power after 49, not I've got a million dollars in the bank, because there's only so much you can spend it on, even if you do have a million dollars in the bank. And in fact, Mao actually did, did have a lot of money. Um, if you read his book by his private doctor, he talks about all the royalties that he got from the selected works of Mao Zedong and other things that were published. Those, those were He's the author, um, and he got royalties. Um, and he actually had quite a lot of money in his personal bank account, and yet he never used it. O- almost never. Sometimes he sent you know a little bit of money here and there to one of his ex-wives or whatever, or for pet causes that he had, um, and he didn't, he didn't want to give the impression that he was using state resources for these personal projects. He'd use his money then. But most of the time he didn't money had nothing to do with him. It never passed through his hands, because money isn't all that important anymore. It's your access to resources and those sort of perks. Okay? Now the party bureaucracy has a clear interest in maintaining its privileges. Okay? So you got two countervailing tendencies here that are gonna work against Mao's source of political legitimacy, which is revolution and disruption, and going above and beyond and transcending. Human norms, human standards, doing what people thought was impossible. The Communist Party seizing power in 49, that was thought impossible. No way this is ever going to happen. Wow, we did it. You're Superman. That's revolution. Doing things like that. Upending the social order when no one thought you could do it. But now you've got the entrenched self-interest of party elites who don't want their privileges disrupted anymore. Okay, We've been in exile, dying and starving for 20, 30 years now. We don't need to continue to do that now that we've seized power. Okay? And then two, the economic development dictates of socialist evolutionary theory. Okay? Remember, there's stages of history. Remember that historical framework? Slave society, uh, you know, feudalism, capitalism, uh, socialism, and communism. And one of the major indicators of going from stage to stage is economic development. And the way that money and resources and economic capital is distributed among society. And these stages take a long time to go from one to the next. So even Marxist economic theory says we need stability. And we need, you know, basically slow, gradual, incremental growth from stage to stage. Okay? However, that's not good enough for Mao. Okay, that's not good enough for Mao. He came to power on revolution. Slow, incremental growth in an area of study, economics, and engineering that he knows nothing about is going to make him irrelevant. It's going to make him irrelevant. Okay? Unfortunately, the revolution is over. Power is won. And he still has 27 more years to live. Well, he didn't know that at the time. But in hindsight, we now know he's going to be around for quite a long time. Unfortunately for China, after 1949, stability and steady economic growth, whether it's capitalist, socialist or otherwise, makes Mao irrelevant. Okay. As a result, Mao is always advocating political platforms and ideas that play to his demonstrated strengths revolution, overcoming constraints, disproving the naysayers, doing the impossible, just like we've been doing for the past 30 years. Think of the way he, his colorful lexicon, the things he's always talking about, his rivals in the party, his naysayers, he brands them as women with bound feet. Remember that in the little leap when he was trying to say we need to go faster and faster? The Chinese people are capable of going much faster than you think we can go. We can reach communism so much faster. Then everyone says, we can catch up to Great Britain so much faster, right? You guys are like old women doddering around on bound feet. That's the ultimate insult (laughs) in modern China, right? Bound, uh, not only is it women, but it's a feudal marker of their body, bound feet. No one wants to be a woman with bound feet in 1950s China. Okay, so the Great Leap Forward. Just Just think of the name of that, Great Leap Forward. It's not a modest leap forward. It's not a slow, incremental, gradual uh, jaunt forward, march forward. It's a great leap forward. Okay, the backyard furnaces. We'll catch Britain in 10 years. The United States, oh, they're threatening us with nuclear weapons? The U.S. is a paper tiger. And then one time he scares the shit out of the Soviets right before the Sino-Soviet split in which they're, you know, urging him. You got to be wary of the United States. We want to have good relations with the United States. And he says, "Oh, that paper tiger! They can drop a nuclear bomb on China. We might lose hundred million people, but we have, you know, six times that amount. We'll just give birth to another hundred million people. We can, we, we can observe a nuclear attack like that." Soviet advisors are aghast. What the hell is this madman saying? This is typical of how Mao. Ta- He's playing to his strengths. See, I never like to portray these historical people as crazy or out of whack or, oh, my God, he finally got unhinged when he got into power. No, 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 this is This is an intelligent, calculating political actor who says, I want to maintain my status at the top. I want to be at the top of the totem pole until the day I die. I'm not going to uh, willingly step down and be demoted. How do I do that? Well, I have to play to my strengths. What are my strengths? Revolution. So no, that's actually the central tension throughout all of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Mao keeps on saying we need to be more revolutionary and then he gets to define what revolutionary means. And all of his rivals in the party are saying, no, go slow. That's not realistic. Economic theory says you can't do that. Socialist theory says you can't do that. The Soviets say you can't do that. You can't do that! Mao says, women with bound feet. U.S. paper tiger. Of course we can. You don't believe in the power of the Chinese people enough. You're not a nationalist. You don't believe in us. It's hard to refute those kinds of insults, those kinds of political attacks. Several times Mao engages in political theater in the 1950s and 60s. He wants to show that he can't be bound down. He's not a bureaucrat. He hasn't gotten comfortable with sedentary life, although he very much has. Mao gets much more portly um, and sedentary as he gets older, and uh, any sort of physical labor uh, he finds to be very, very difficult. At one point, uh, in the run-up to the uh, Great Leap Forward, he's trying to encourage people to go out, Um, you know, we don't have the modern technology or the money to do it, but we're just going to try sheer force of will, we're going to send all of our people out and dig a new reservoir on the outskirts of Beijing. All right, we're going to use buckets and haul rocks, miles, long lines of hauling rocks in primitive buckets. And that's how we're going to make up for our lack of economic and industrial infrastructure. And he actually goes out and does a photo op. And this is all wonderfully recounted in Dr. Lee's book, The Private Life of Chairman Mao, in which he says, yeah, Mao went out and he wanted to show that he too was a man of the people, that he could dig dirt and dig rocks and everything. So he says he's out there. And he digs for about 20 minutes or so, uh, you know, with the shovel, pulls out some rocks. He has a big, you know, comical hat on and whatnot. And then he immediately, they, they get their photo ops. He's on the, you know, the pages of the People's Daily the next day. Um, and then Dr. Lee says, yeah, and then we hurriedly took him to the side. He rested in the shade with iced tea or whatever it was, um, huffing and puffing and sweating like crazy. And we, and we were scared for his health, All <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, He gets plump and soft definitely in, in his older years. But that's not the image he wants to... to to project to the country because he needs to have that revolutionary image in order to push his revolutionary platforms in order to keep him at the forefront of policy making even when the policy making dictates and priorities of the new state make him irrelevant and do not play to his real strengths he has to make them play to his real strengths and that is the central political tension of the entire 27 years of the Mao era that's how we got the great leap forward That's how we got the anti-rightist campaign. And that's how we're going to get the Cultural Revolution. When revolution is no longer on center stage, Mao is quickly marginalized as an abstract symbol of little practical utility, and he doesn't like that. Steady, stable growth makes him irrelevant. This is what he is today. He is an abstract symbol of little practical utility. That's why his portrait is hanging over Tiananmen Square, on the gate of heavenly peace. Most Chinese today are encouraged throughout their education to regard Mao as an abstract symbol of patriotic pride who represents the Communist Party, the revolutionary success of the Communist Party, and he gets credit for all the good things they did, and they don't want to dive too much into the bad things that he did. Great Leap Forward is almost not talked about at all. Cultural Revolution is heavily edited, and we'll talk about that. Uh, As we go on here, I think in the next episode, we'll talk about how they carefully reassessed Mao's role at the end of the Cultural Revolution to put some of the blame on him, but not the worst blame, and so they could rehabilitate him as a national image. You're not supposed to reflect too much on Mao anymore, okay? You're just supposed to see him as an abstract symbol of your nation, take pride in it, and that's it. He would be rolling in his grave if he knew this is what he had become. This is precisely what he was trying to avoid was being a toothless symbol of the nation whose portrait hangs from Tiananmen Square, but whose revolutionary policies are not taken seriously at all. Okay? And the Cultural Revolution was his attempt to resist that transformation. Okay? Okay, now, let's descend a little bit from the clouds where the birds fly around and get a little more into the details of what's going on. The origins of the Cultural Revolution lie in the political battles of the 1950s. I told you, right? Cultural revolution is a misnomer. It's really not about culture all that much at all. Culture will come into play as a rhetorical excuse to justify what you're doing. But the real cause of the cultural revolution was politics. Okay? And he's really trying to instigate a political revolution. All right, now Mao won the debate over speed in the 1950s. It was a Pyrrhic victory. He went down in flames in the Great Leap Forward, but he still won the debate. That's why we had a Great Leap Forward, because he won. Remember that debate over speed in the 1950s? We need to go faster and faster from from mutual aid teams to low-level co-ops, high-level co-ops, and then communes. All right? And then he tried to bring in the urban intellectuals to get their critique, hoping that they would critique his rivals in the party as not being revolutionary and fast enough. We can do better. And they didn't. They critiqued everything, <laughs> including the right of the Communist Party to rule. And so he had to then initiate an anti-rightist backlash against them, ruining the lives and careers of th- you know, hundreds of thousands of people who had been encouraged to speak up. Okay. Um, he won that debate in a Pyrrhic victory. Now he needs to initiate a new revolution, a new movement, in order to get back on center stage after the Great Leap Forward. Great Leap Forward fails. Alright, it fails. And he has to take some of the blame for that. Not not, not, not not directly, but indirectly. Everyone knows this was what Mao was pushing for. This was his little baby. Okay? In 1962, after all it's all over and they finally repudiated it. They have this thing called the 6,000 Cadres Conference in which they have to assess what just happened, what the hell just happened, and what are we going to do about it to clean up and fix everything. And Mao later complains that, quote, they treated me like a dead ancestor. Another pejorative reference to the feudal era. They treated me like a dead ancestor. I'm just a symbol. They aren't willing to openly repudiate me, but it's clear that they don't want me making policy. Oh, you think? (laughs) I mean, yeah, of course. That's because they're not total idiots. They know that the Great Leap Forward was a disaster, that you were responsible for the Great Leap Forward because it played to your political strengths. It had no empirical merit whatsoever, and yet you pushed us into it anyways. You backed us into a political corner, and we had to do it, and now we're all fucked. Yeah, it's your fault. We're going to treat you like a dead ancestor. In short, that's what happened. But that's not okay for him. He's a master politician, and he knows how to get back in the limelight. So, who has he already drawn on? What what constituencies of Chinese society has he already drawn upon to try to push his agendas? He, he needs help. Okay, he needs help. And because he has this sort of cult of personality, he's, he, 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 he's almost godlike in public propaganda. He knows that if he calls upon, if he makes overtures to certain sectors of society, they're probably going to respond favorably to him. Okay, the first time he did that was with the Hundred Flowers Movement. Right? 1956, 1957, trying to move faster and faster to the Great Leap Forward. Remember that big miscalculation? Who did he call upon then? Urban intellectuals. Urban intellectuals. And then he turned around and repudiated them. Harshly. Okay? Second, Great Leap Forward itself. Who does he call upon? The peasants. Rural peasants. And then they get betrayed, (laughs) thrown under the bus. So, by early 1960s, he has already thrown under the bus urban intellectuals, rural peasants. Who's left? Who's left? Urban youth. Young people. Okay, young people. Now, how is he going to try to 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 bring himself back to prominence. Okay, he's got a couple a couple areas that he's looking at. And I'm gonna go through some of these. We're gonna eventually get to those young people. The red that, that that's what I mean when I say the, the the red guards. We're foreshadowing the red guards here. Who will be brought in to fight battles on Mao's behalf, not even knowing what they're really doing, and then they too will eventually get repudiated. Sometimes violently. But always traumatically, even if it wasn't violently. Okay? First, he tries to get behind this movement called the Socialist Education Movement, which sort of goes from 1962 to 1965. Sort of like the Hundred Flowers, he says, we're gonna to try to reform the party. Alright, reform the party by inviting mass criticism, but not from urban intellectuals this time. Let's go out into the countryside and find out what really went wrong from you know from the peasants themselves. And invite mass criticism. And eventually, Mao says, Liu Shaoqi, okay, Liu Shaoqi, the number two guy in the party, second only to Mao, who actually is in charge of the day-to-day business of the government more often than Mao is. Liu Shaoqi, he says, and Deng Xiaoping and some of these other people, they hijacked the socialist education movement. It was supposed to be bottom-up criticism, and he was assuming, just like with the Hundred Flowers Movement, it was going to criticize his rivals. And they were going to say, oh, the Great Leap Forward was wonderful. It was just implemented wrongly. We've got to tweak here, 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 and there, and then it'll be great. Okay, that's what he was hoping to hear. And what happens instead is Liu Shaoqi organizes work teams, communist work teams of loyal par- party cadres who go out into the countryside and sort of sort of, uh, lead the discussions into safe areas with conclusions that they prefer, that pander to their political base, steady, you know, steady economic growth by technocrats in the cities. Peasants don't really know what they're doing. Leave it all to us. And Mao, after 1965, is disillusioned with this. And he says, you know what, any policy that I come up with, any movement that I try to instigate, it will be hijacked by the party bureaucrats. Okay. And so I have to do something That they can't hijack. Because if they get in charge of it, they'll turn it into a top-down enterprise. It won't be bottom-up. He's always convinced if it's bottom-up, it'll be in my favor. But they made it top-down. Okay? Some other things are going on. There's this campaign called Learn from Dachai. Dachai is this uh, rural community. And, uh, you know, totally poverty-stricken. I want to say wasteland, but not a very... Uh, fertile area of the country. I believe it was in Shanxi province. Um, and uh, Dajai is uh, a a commune that Jiang Qing, Mao Zedong's wife, his fourth wife, sort of puts her political weight behind. I think it begins during the Great Leap Forward in the, in the late 1950s. Um, and she puts her political weight behind it as sort of a showcase commune, rural commune, where she can prove to the rest of the country, look, Dajai was a poor Forlorn rural area. And look what we managed to do with it. We turned it into a, a socialist utopia. Look at the grain yields that are coming out of this commune. They're off the charts. And this would be publicized in the newspapers. Over and over again. And everyone, and, and you had this phrase, In agriculture, learn from da jai. Nongye shui da jai. I actually remember quite clearly, one time I was traveling through Yunnan Way in the southwestern part of the country, borders Southeast Asia. Uh, I was biking through the countryside. I think this was in Dali, the city of, D- of Dali. I was biking through the countryside, and I saw this uh, farmhouse. And on the side of the farmhouse, they had written this slogan, right on the bricks of the house, Nongye Shui Dachai. And I looked at it. It was faded. You couldn't see it that well. But because I had studied this, I said, hey, let's learn from Dachai. I recognize that slogan. I, I, and so I got off my bike, I took a picture of it. I still have that picture today. Uh, it's sort of a, a badge of honor to me that I, that I spotted a learn from Dachai's slogan. Now, what only came out later, much, much later from archival research is that Dachai uh, was not this miracle success story that uh, managed to become, you know, produce so much grain simply because they followed Mao Zedong thought and, uh, you know, were close to the masses and overcame the constraints of, 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 of human will. It was later found out that Jiang Qing and her supporters had funneled in immeasurable resources to make sure that it was a successful commune. In other words, Da jai could not have been as successful as it was on its own. It would have been exactly what it always had been, a poor, forlorn, rural uh, village. And this happened in other areas too, in which you know someone high up in the party would want to have their pet project that they could use as sort of like a stepping stone to prominence within the party. They need to show this is successful, and it's successful because they're following my policy proposals, my platforms. And Dachai was one of those. And Mao's wife was closely associated with that. Okay, so learn from Dachai, cultivating the Mao Zedong spirit. All right, other things. There's two major people that Mao is going to start uh, getting closer and closer to. A close alliance with as the Cultural Revolution approaches. The first I already told you, his wife Jiang Qing, his fourth wife. When they got married back in Yan'an in the 1940s or late 1930s, uh, many of the other party members, top party members, actually didn't like Jiang Qing at all. She was a former actress from Shanghai, you know, urban bourgeoisie, um, and they didn't like her. They thought that she had political ambitions and that she was only cozying up to Mao Um, in order to sort of uh, further her own political ambitions, which they all said, you know, she's got political ambitions. we got to make sure she is never able to act upon those. And so they actually forced Mao to agree. Yes, you can marry her, but only if she's never involved in politics. And Mao agreed. And so for all the 1950s and part of the 1960s, Jiang Qing is a miserably bored woman. Here you can read the memoirs of Dr. Lee, the private life of Chairman Mao. So much of the narrative and tension in that book is between Dr. Lee and Jiang Qing because he's constantly bumping into her, being forced to have interactions with her, and he says, "This is a smart, intelligent woman who has been forced to the sidelines, marginalized, not allowed to have any political power whatsoever, even though she's the most powerful. She's the wife of the most powerful person in the land, and she's always looking for something to do." That's meaningful and substantive. She too doesn't really have any technical expertise, engineering expertise. She's like Mao. She doesn't really, she's not really relevant to the new situation. What the country needs doesn't play to her strengths, whatever they are. Okay, so she's always looking for new revolutionary projects too, and Mao keeps on pushing her aside. And then finally, in the 1960s, he sees her as to be useful, and says, "You know what?" You can start doing some of my propaganda campaigns, things like learn from Dachai. And why don't you go down to Shanghai and recruit some of your old, uh, you know, cultural cinema, uh, urban bourgeoisie associates, intellectuals who fancy themselves cultural connoisseurs and writers and op-ed writers and these sorts of people. And why don't you start, you know, creating the sort of propaganda that I need? To further revolution. And she does. She jumps wholeheartedly into it because finally she's been allowed to do something. chang Qing will not be remembered finally in modern Chinese history. I would once again say maybe she was an unpleasant woman, maybe she wasn't. But the, circum- the historical circumstances that she found herself in almost predetermined that if she was going to have any political role whatsoever, it was going to be uh, that of someone being used shamelessly by her husband for his political purposes, and then being discarded when it was no longer useful to him. And that's exactly what happened. Okay, his number two ally is Lin, Lin Biao. Lin Biao, head of the PLA. Remember the uh, during the Great Leap Forward, Peng Dehuai, the former head of the PLA, uh, ended up being purged after he had the audacity at the Lushan Resort, In 1959, I believe, July 1959, uh, Peng Dehuai wrote a private letter to Mao saying, you know, there's what's really going on. This is not working. We need to reassess and recalibrate. Great Leap Forward is not going well. And Mao, seen as a a threat to himself, uh, published the letter, made copies, distributed it, and denounced him as a rightist against the party. And Peng Dehuai went down. That's the dangers of going against Mao. You have to remember that. Okay, you may not like the fact that he's constantly putting his head back into everyone's business and trying to say, hey, I'm relevant. I need to be making policy because, you know, rightly, you know, he doesn't have the expertise to be making policy in a non-wartime, non-revolutionary situation. But hey, how do you fight that then? How do you fight it? He's got a cult of personality. Everyone thinks he's, he's you know, a demigod. Not easy. As Peng DeHui, a widely respected man with a lot of power, found to his regret in 1959. Okay, in his place, Lin Biao takes over the PLA. Lin Biao's a weird man. If you start, if you read some of the books about you know Lin Biao, he has all these weird phobias of light and whatnot. All these peasant ways. One of the grossest part of Dr. Lee's book is he says he came in one time and uh, you know walked in on uh, Lin Biao uh, the way he went to the bathroom. Number two was he was you know still so much entrenched in his peasant ways is that he would squat on top of a regular bed and have a bedpan underneath him, and then his wife would come over and put like a, a blanket over him for privacy, and he would shit into his bedpan, squatting over on top of the bed. Uh, because squatting, that's how you do it out in the peasant areas. Um, and still as an adult living in Beijing in nice quarters, that's still what he did. Anyways, that's not so weird. He's a peasant, and he's going to keep peasant ways. But trust me, Lin Biao's a weird guy if you start looking into him. Anyways, that's not the point here. The point is, is that Lin Biao, as occupying the influential position of the head of the PLA, People's Liberation Army, is going to be in a position to influence a lot of people. What does he start to do? Well, he does two things. He is the one who will seek permission to create what becomes known later as the Little Red Book. A little, as his name suggests, a little red book. Over one billion of these things would eventually be printed. Remember all those images that you see in those newsreels of millions of people, millions of kids waving Little Red Book during the Cultural Revolution? It's basically Little Red Book is a selected works of Chairman Mao, uh, you know, in tiny print, selected down to, you know, it's essential quotes. All right. It's not all that profound. It's just sayings taken from his various works. Okay. But it will become this sort of like political talisman showing that you're loyal the greatest revolutionary, the guy who still leads China and should still leave China, if you know what's good for you. First time I ever went to China, um, I I had, uh, oh, oh, I was going to give you an example, but the example requires a backstory. When I was at University of Washington studying Chinese, I used to do a language exchange with a Chinese uh, graduate student who was doing a chemistry PhD. Um, and uh, we would, uh, uh, you know, do language exchange, practice search, she practice her English, I practiced Chinese, and then I eventually went to Xi'an. In 2001, summer of 2001, I went to Xi'an to teach English. First time I'd ever, ever, ever been in China. And her parents were from Xi'an. So I said, hey, why don't you meet my parents? So I did. I went into their apartment and I met them. Um, and the first thing that the dad did, is he gave me a gift. You know what his gift was? A little red book in English translation for me, so I could read Mao Zedong's selected quotations. It was sort of this treasured family, you know, heirloom that you had even long after the Cultural Revolution. I remember, Mao is so high that you, it's perilous to knock him down from that pedestal. It's perilous. And most people have a predilection. They're already previously inclined not to blame him for the horrible things that happened. You don't want to believe. That the greatest revolutionary, that the leader of your country can do such evil things. You don't want to believe it. You want to believe that it's the fault of his underlings who implemented his stuff and, and hijacked his proposals. You want to believe that your leaders are infallible. And if only they could do what they really wanted to do, everything would be fine. Okay? You have to think about, you know, people who want to take down Mao while he's alive. It's very, very difficult to do that. You're going up against a 100-foot concrete wall of people saying, no, I don't want to believe that Mao would do these things. He's just a great revolutionary who's doing what's best for China. So, Lin Biao, in addition to, to the Little Red Book, he also creates this cult of Lei Feng. Lei Feng, what's Lei Feng? Lei Feng is a guy that may or may not have existed. We have no idea. No one can confirm or or, or, dis, or you know, disprove this guy's existence. He's a young guy. I think he was in his late teens or early 20s. He was said to be a guy in his late teens or early 20s, okay, who had grown up under the Mao era, under the communist state, and he was Mao's greatest soldier. He labored in the PLA. He, 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 he read Mao Zedong's works every day. That's all he read was Mao Zedong's sayings. He wanted to become closer to the masses. He engaged in hard labor. Real life experience, real labor was more important than a formal education. All Mao Zedong talking points. And then one day he dies in a very mundane way. He's doing labor, you know, work, car repair, something like that. And some heavy metal thing falls from a shelf above him, hits him on the head and he dies. A classic, humble, understated proletarian death. Okay, that's the new hero of a communist era. That's what a a communist hero is supposed to look like. All right. And then all of a sudden what happens in the 1960s is you start seeing a new publication emerge. The Diary of Leifeng. Leifeng Ji. I have a copy of this. <laughs> and I always pass it around in my class. It's hilarious to read. Well, it's not, I don't know if it's hilarious because it's not very interesting. His thoughts are very boring. Mao's wonderful. I want to work for the people. I will get better by reading more of Mao Zedong's works. And working harder. And sweating. The whole point. Is that basically Lei Feng is probably an invented character, who then gets gets built up into this com, you know ideal communist hero that everyone else should emulate. And Lei Feng propaganda was everywhere. It was everywhere. Right now, there's like some Lei Feng uh, nostalgia kitsch. If you go to China now, you'll see Lei Feng matchboxes, Lei Feng mugs, all these sort of things. Okay, but the history of Lei Feng was sort of like the little red, the little red book. All right, glorify Mao and more importantly glorify Mao's Mao Zedong thought, Mao Zedong Sisiang, Mao Zedong thought. Revolution, overcoming constraints. You don't need 20 years of education. You don't need a degree. Right now, right here. Summon up your inner will, your inner power. The Chinese nation is the best there ever was. We can do it. And that's all we need. Okay. So, with all of these things swirling around, these are, the, these are the sort of the little side pet projects that Mao's pursuing in the 1960s. As he sees the party getting away from him, they're going towards gradual economic growth, favoring the, the urban cities, the industrial factories, And Mao saying this doesn't play to my strengths, I'm being marginalized. They're treating me like a dead ancestor. How do I get back in the limelight? Revolution. Learn from Da Chai, Lei Feng, Little Red Book, Socialist Education Movement, which fails. That's the only one that fails. The others all succeed. New allies, Jiang Qing, Lin Biao, the army, propaganda. And he's pulling these things closer to him, preparing for an attack on the people that he sees as having seized policymaking uh, importance away from him. So the Cultural Revolution is Mao's pursuit of the destruction of the chief detractors in the Communist Party through the mobilization of the last major constituency not really yet exploited and disillusioned, urban youth who grew up entirely under the PRC after 49, totally worship him, and are constantly reminded that they never got a chance to make revolution. You valorize revolution. You talk about how great your revolution was. How it brought peace and prosperity to China. And we didn't get to participate in it. They're desperate to prove their red credentials. How loyal they are. And Mao knows this. And he plays to that constituency. Now officially. Officially. Around 1965, 1966. 1966. What Mao says, all right, he can't come out and say, I'm bitter that I'm no longer important as a policymaker and I want to seize power back. So I'm going to initiate a movement that cynically exploits the last constituency of our country that isn't yet disillusioned with me. I'm going to cynically exploit them to destroy my enemies simply to, for the purposes of securing my own power. He can't say that. Just like the United States can't say we're invading Iraq because we want oil, <laughs> right? you got to come up with some bullshit reason of why you're doing it that sounds really good. What sounds really good? Ah, here it is. Here's the official discourse. We need to prevent Soviet revisionism in China. Soviet revisionism. What the hell is Soviet revisionism? All right, remember the Sino-Soviet split? Right, a split largely for geopolitical reasons. just It was destined to happen. Two big neighbors sharing a lot of a border economic powerhouses in Eurasia it was inevitable that wasn't going to last very long anyways okay but the result is that now Mao has an example of another socialist state that to him in his eyes from the Chinese perspective has gone rogue because you have to explain what happened how can two socialist parties no longer be on talking terms How can you guys be fighting? That doesn't make any sense. Right? So you have to explain what the hell happened. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, of course, from the Chinese perspective, we're right. They're wrong. And Mao specifically said, he specifically said, the Soviets began to go wrong when Stalin died. And they repudiated Stalin. Those secret speeches of Khrushchev in the 1950s, repudiating Stalin's policies. His reign of terror, his betrayal of democratic centralism, in which all the top members of the party are supposed to have an equal say, and what happens? And he says, look what's happened in the Soviet Union, the fact that they repudiated Stalin, and then soon afterwards it led to a split with us. This means that communist parties as well are capable of going astray. Communist parties too are not infallible. They are capable of evolving a new exploiting class from within the system. What is this new exploiting class from within the system? Where did the corruption come from? You have to explain how the Soviets were kicked out of the garden of socialist Eden. that, That new exploiting class is the parasites of the party bureaucrats who are going back towards capitalism. That's what it is. Okay? Party bureaucrats. That's where the Soviet Union went awry. When they had Stalin, this charismatic strongman in charge, they were doing the right thing, even though Mao hated Stalin. Doesn't matter. For rhetorical purposes here, he has to love Stalin. Because he sees in Stalin an analogous political situation to himself. He also is the Stalin and Lenin, all wrapped up in one, of China. OK, so we said, saying after Stalin, that's when the bureaucrats took over, embodied by men like Nikita Khrushchev, who did the secret speech against Stalin. He says, look at the Soviet Union now, a bunch of bureaucrats making gradual progress, going back towards capitalism. That's what's going to happen to us if we don't find a way to prevent Soviet imperialist revisionism. This also is a convenient way of explaining why you have these conflicts with the Soviet Union along your northern borders now, because you start to have conflicts. I think you have uh, shots fired and people killed across the uh, Heilongjiang River in Manchuria. In the 1960s, you have uh, tension and conflicts along Xinjiang and with uh, between Outer Mongolia and Inner Mongolia. Yeah, the communists are getting the treatment that the nationalists had to have during the 1930s and 40s, right? Okay, it's not, it's, 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 it's not so easy to deal with when you're the one who's in power and you're not sort of, you know, the uh, the party outside of power just looking in from a distance. So you can explain everything by saying that the communists, that the Soviets are revisionists. They've, they've developed, they've given birth to a new parasitic class of party bureaucrats. Capitalist rotors was the way they like to refer to it. And these are traitors to the party now. Now because this parasitic class of party bureaucrats Exists at the highest levels of the party," Mao said. "We need to bombard the headquarters. Hongjia Silingbu. It's a remarkable phrase. Think of this: this isn't some you know leader in exile talking about overthrowing the government that tried to kill him and drove him out of the country. This is the standing head. Of the party, the most powerful person in the land, saying to the nation's youth, everyone in school, bombard the headquarters. I'm surrounded by traitors, party bureaucrats who are taking the Soviet revisionist road back towards capitalism. And you need to save me from them. This is incredible what he's doing. And this is when you get the Red Guards, okay? Now, how do we explain the Red Guards? Okay, we're getting to the conflict stage here. We're in 1966, okay? Now, I'm gonna bring in a little bit of arcane trivia for you. There's a lot of arcane weird stuff that happens during the Cultural Revolution. One of the central sparks, the sparks, that gives rise to the fire, the prairie fire, that is the Red Guards and the Cultural Revolution. Is all about a play. All about a play. Okay? I know you're totally lost now. You're like, what the fuck is Professor Jacobs talking about? Now, 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 now we're talking about theater and playwrights? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Because a man by the name of Wuhan also happens to be the vice mayor of Beijing. Peng Jun is the mayor. Wuhan is the vice mayor. Wuhan, back in the day, was also a playwright. A man of many talents, both a politician and a cultured man who wrote plays. And it turns out, back in the 1950s, Wu Han had written a play called High Ray Dismissed from Office. Bear with me here. I know, it's very arcane. When you are dealing with with a country that has thousands of years of literature and history, this is how various political debates will get mediated, is through these arcane references. Okay. Um, Wuhan wrote a play, Hai Rei dismissed from office. Whew. First I had to explain who Wuhan was. Now I'm going to have to tell you who Hai Re is. Hai Rei was an official during the Ming dynasty. I think the late Ming dynasty. When's the Ming dynasty? 1368 to 1644. I believe I always get this wrong. I believe Hai Rei, uh, the Jiajing emperor, 1500s, early 1600s, or thereabout. Doesn't really matter. What matters about Hai Rei is that he's seen, he's mythologized as a righteous official, who was trying to remonstrate with the Jiajing Emperor, or whatever the hell Emperor it was, remonstrate with the Emperor about bad things that were happening out in the countryside, policies that were gone bad, and he wanted to tell the Emperor the truth. And none of the Emperor's other men had the guts to tell him the truth. Except for Hai-Rae. Hai-Rae tells the truth, and as the title of the play suggests, he's dismissed from office. Oh, poor Hai-Rae, right? All right. What does all this have to do? Okay, with the Cultural Revolution. Has a lot, actually. Well, the play High Ray dismissed from office was a historical theater production. Okay, like a Shakespeare, Henry the Henry V, you know, or you know, one of the Shakespeare plays, it's a historical play. Alright, they had him in China too. And High Ray writes this, and he writes it in such a way where one of the things that High Ray is trying to tell the Emperor in the play is that the people in the countryside are starving. Things aren't going all that well. Uh, I think this is 1959, 1960 or so. Things aren't even early 1960s, regardless. It's around the time of the Great Leap Forward that this play was written and performed. Okay. Mao and Jiang Qing see the play. Mao isn't all that perturbed by it. Jiang Qing, however, starts rumors, whispering conversations among people, saying, doesn't it seem to you like, this play is a veiled attack on the Great Leap Forward and Chairman Mao. Isn't Hai Rui the equivalent to Peng Dehuai? And isn't Mao Zedong equivalent to the Ming Dynasty Emperor who dismissed Hai Rui from office for speaking the truth? Isn't that what's really going on here? And in the beginning, Mao didn't take this all seriously. I remember in Dr. Li's memoirs, he says, you know, Mao didn't really buy, buy onto this line of reasoning in the beginning. It was Jiang Qing and some others who were sort of pushing that line. But as Mao is looking for something to sort of launch the Cultural Revolution, he sees some utility in this play. His, namely, if he has a legitimate means of attacking Wuhan, the author of this play, because Wuhan's the vice mayor of Beijing, he can then attack the mayor of Beijing, because that's how you take down your political enemies. He needs to take down the mayor of Beijing, because that's a major city, and you if you don't think that guy is loyal to you, uh, you want to take him down and, re- and replace him with someone who is loyal to you. So how do we get at Peng Jun? You go through a subordinate. You can't go straight for the big cheese. you got to go through his assistant. That's how a lot of you know, political attacks work all around the world, right? You go for someone lower down who's an easier target, and then you follow the breadcrumbs, and you work your way up until you kick Nixon out of office. <laughs> that's how you do it. Okay, so that's very useful. And suddenly he says, Yeah, we can initiate a debate. Let's publish some op-eds in the People's Daily that start debating this play as a veiled attack on the Great Leap Forward. And see what people say. And Mao's always like that. He's really good, that's what a really good politician does. You don't associate yourself with the policy blatantly. You sort of, you know, get other people, you let them know what you'd like, you know, general parameters of what you'd like to pursue. They start coming up with ideas, and then you say, yeah, that sounds good. Why don't we talk about that? And then you see what happens and pick and choose which of the results are most useful to you. Editorials start getting published about talking about this play. Is this play a counter-revolutionary play that attacked our chairman? And the answer is obviously yes. Now, how does this involve the Red Guards? One of the things that gets debated is Hi-Ray dismissed from office, this play. Mao makes it a public issue to be discussed. And when he tells people to bombard the headquarters to take a look at the people who are betraying me, this sums up all those themes together. And some people start writing what are called big character posters. That's about at Beijing University. Big character posters in which you make a public proclamation about your views, your political views on something of contemporary importance. And some of these posters take up the call and start criticizing Wuhan. And then others, by extension, who are other people in the party who are undermining nefariously Chairman Mao's infallible ideas. His idea of how we're going to have continuous revolution. And then Mao gives his blessing to the big character posters that are criticizing the people that he wants to be criticized in the party. And with that, when they think they have his blessing, it's a vague blessing, but when they think that he likes what they're doing, all the youth in the universities start making big character posters and they start criticizing everyone, which is in Mao's interest. Then they start forming factions. Then they start fighting each other. They start organizing struggle sessions of top leaders, forcing them to go before a public audience who yells at them and demands to know what they've done for the past 40 years of their life. And they go through their whole biography. Did you or did you not in 1942 when you went to the the wartime capital of Chongqing? To have, you know, negotiations with the Americans and Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party. Didn't you have a secret discussion with so-and-so nationalist official? You are secretly a running dog of the American imperialists and the nationalist revisionists. Stuff like that. Total nonsense. But that's what you did. And that's how you brought people down. You find people who have vulnerabilities, political vulnerabilities in their past. Even top communist leaders can have that. Only Mao... Only Mao is going to be immune from these sort of attacks. Okay? Now, in reality, every faction believes it is fighting with Mao's blessing and in favor of his interpretation of the proper revolutionary path. And for the first year and a half or so, 1966 to early 1967, Mao is, Ma- Mao is happy to encourage this belief. He just wants chaos. He just wants everyone to feel vulnerable so he can consolidate his power and enshrine continuous revolution As the cardinal policy of the Chinese Communist Party. And Mao Zedong thought as the leading guidelines for the country. Mao is encouraging temporary anarchy and civil war as a means to destroy his enemies. Once his power is secure, he will end his self-created revolution and withdraw the right to rebel. He says, you know, you are right to rebel when the revolution is being stymied. And that's exactly what the youth will do until it's no longer convenient to his political agenda for that to happen. Okay. Remember, Mao alone is untouchable in all of this. His prestige dwarfs that of everyone else, and no one will attack the very embodiment of red credentials. Also, he has prudent allies. He's been preparing for this movement for years. He has the Lin Biao, and by extension, the entire PLA. That's the military. That's a pretty nice ally to have. The little red book. He's got Jiang Qing and her Shanghai, her Shanghai allies in the cultural sphere. That's pr- propaganda, newspapers, radios, magazines, these sorts of things, slogans. That's really, really powerful stuff to control. Now, let's talk a little bit about how the Cultural Revolution actually unfolds. There's really two eras of the Cultural Revolution. You divide it into two eras. So the first era is 1966 to 1969. That's most of the violence. That's most of the total anarchy and chaos and people dying and struggle sessions. Okay. And then you have 1969 to 76. That's sort of Mao's attempt to end all the bloodshed and chaos, put an end to all that, but still enshrine his revolutionary ideals constant revolution, valorization of illiterate peasants from the countryside, whatever plays to his constituency, his power base. He wants to sort of uh, 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 devolve power down to them. Okay we'll talk about these two different eras of the cultural revolution collectively you talk about the 10 years shunian uh, dangdong or dongdang in uh, chinese the 10 turbulent years uh, but really you need to think about it in two distinct eras a 3 year period and then a 7 year period until finally mao dies and it's all over All right, so the first three years of violence and chaos. First, you have the cancellation of school. Once the young people are getting involved in the universities, Mao eventually cancels all schools throughout the country. All of us, I feel like every single thing that I say, every new development, I have to like say, wow, can you believe what's going on here? Because it's really incredible. What's going on uh, during these three years? And so young people are allowed to wander the country, creating their interpretation of revolution, in theory with Mao's blessing, in theory what Mao told them to do, but hey, you should go pick up a copy of the Little Red Book or Mao's Selected Works. No, 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 just the Little Red Book, all right? Just read that, because that's what the Red Guards had, and that's what most of them are reading. You try to pull out some sort of consistent ideology or game plan, concrete game plan of what you should do to make your society strong and great and wonderful, And then make that your basis for your actions that you're going to do for the next five years of your life. You're not going to be able to find anything. Everyone can interpret the quotes in the Little Red Book however the hell they want. Okay? Uh, There is no clear guiding path to follow. So, you have all these young people going around with the Little Red Book, interpreting it as they see fit. Engaging in struggle sessions against their teachers. That one always hits close to home for me, I imagine. Oh, <laughs> if this ever happened to me, I'd be the one with my hair cut, my arms in the airplane position, uh, my, my, my students spitting on me, kicking at me, throwing things at me, questioning every single year of my life. When you were 21 years old and you did this trip to so-and-so or blah, blah, blah. Did you or did you not do this and that? And I'd be like, no, I didn't. Crack, boom, pow. Oh, well, Did you do it? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Counter-revolutionary. People died. Teachers died at their kids, at their students' hands. 10, 11, 12-year-old people murdered adults and other kids. Okay, this is tough shit to live with. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. Some people do. A lot of people don't want to talk about what they did. It's very hard today, or any time in the past 30 years, try to find someone who admits to killing someone, or drawing bloodshed from someone else during the Cultural Revolution. You're not going to find anyone. No one admits to it. Right? It's always someone else did this. Other people were doing this. I was a victim. I was a victim. Well, yeah, in a very large bird's eye sense, every, everyone was a victim except for Mao. Almost the entire Chinese nation was a victim during the Cultural Revolution except for Mao. That's true. But on a micro scale, we know that mass violence occurred, millions of people died. Sometimes by suicide, but a lot of them was physical violence. Someone did that violence. And no one admits to it today. A lot of them were really, really young. There's a lot of 60 and 70-year-old people in China today who probably killed someone. I'm not trying to, you know, beat them down and whatnot. I I sympathize. What a hell of a situation to be put in when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. My God, I have no idea what I would have done. I might have killed someone too. But imagine living your whole life with that knowledge and not really trying to suppress it, you know? Oh, it would be tough. Okay. Struggle sessions of anyone, anyone who's in a position of authority. They're all fair game. You attend mass rallies in Tiananmen Square, catch a glimpse of Mao receiving his loyal red warriors, okay? Very high-level targets went down. Liu Shaoqi, the number two, he's the most famous. He'll be struggled against numerous times, his wife too. One of the famous ways that the Red Guards attack his wife, Wang Guangmei, is they get pictures of when she did a state visit to Indonesia, and the state picture that was published in the People's Daily uh, showed her wearing a necklace of white pearls. And so they forced to get these huge, comically large Uh, Like you know, like white wiffle balls or something. Turned it into this enormous necklace. Put it around her neck and engaged in a struggle session. You know, showing, oh, you're you're truly an undercover rich bourgeoisie who wants to take the capitalist road. Look at you indulging in these pearl necklaces during a state visit to Indonesia, right? Um, And she suffers immensely too. She actually survives the Cultural Revolution. Liu does not. All right. Now it's not, you know, there's no single person who strikes the final blow, but after multiple beatings and neglect and then being put in jail, uh, he eventually dies alone in a jail cell or house arrest in very poor conditions with no health care. Uh, that's exactly what Mao wanted. He wanted Liu Shaoqi out of the picture. Liu Shaoqi represented everything that Mao Zedong did not represent. All right, slow, incremental uh, economic growth by someone who knows what he's doing in the economic sphere and is a traditional Marxist. Uh, uh-uh. That doesn't play to Mao's power base. Liu Shaoqi had to go. And uh, Mao expressed no regret whatsoever when Liu Shaoqi died. Uh, Deng Xiaoping would be purged a couple times. He, he would become known as a, as a survivor. But uh, Mao always thought that he would be useful and he was capable of being reformed. So he kept purging him and then kept bringing him back. Okay. In all these struggle sessions, Total public humiliation, you got to wear a dunce cap, you're in the airplane position, your hair cut off, a sign would be put on you saying, you know, uh, capitalist rotor, uh, 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 dirty slut, you know, horrible things. You can imagine why people committed suicide. I'm a historian, I often have to look at archives. And what you often find when you're trying to study prominent people, uh, you realize that they burned all of their papers during the Cultural Revolution because they were afraid, you know, the Red Guards are coming. Uh, If they find anything that doesn't toe the current narrow party line, any dirt on me whatsoever that can be interpreted as sinister motives, I'm a goner. And they burned all kinds of stuff. You know how many times I'm studying people in modern Chinese history... Uh, and, you know, me, I'm usually a slightly earlier era, I'm studying the early 20th century. But the people that I study, they, they continue to live into the PRC era. You know how many times the people I've been studying, I'll look at their dates of when they were born and when they died, and you find a death date of somewhere between 1966 and 1969. And then you're like, well, what happened? And you can find almost no information, probably 99% of the time when you find a death date of 66 to 69, and there's no clear clear explanation of what happened, they don't say like liver cancer, you know, or some really obvious thing, uh, a really specific thing. Usually it's a struggle session, suicide, humiliation, uh, medical neglect, you know, whatever it might be um, during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, That's a pretty safe bet. Okay. Um, Now, other things that happened, uh, well, it has to have more rhetorical substance, right? Again, like I said, it can't all just be uh, Mao uh, trying to regain power for his own selfish purposes. There has to be you know combating Soviet revisions, taking the capitalist road, preventing you know a parasitic new bureaucratic kind of class within from within. Uh, but there's also more than that. It was the culture revolution after all by God, you have to have some culture in there right? Well one of the, the things that gave the culture revolution its cultural substance to fight the fact, despite the fact that it was almost all motivated by politics was something known as the D- destroy the Four Olds campaign. Destroy the Four Olds Campaign, in which young people, Red Guards, were encouraged to go out into the world, you know, travel, make revolution, re, uh, retrace the uh, the long march, you know, a thousand miles or whatnot, go retrace that on your own, uh, go out and find temples as well, old Confucian temples. Buddhist monasteries, whatever, and attack the feudal feudal remnants that are imagined to be responsible for allowing revisionism to occur within the Chinese Communist Party. It couldn't all just be the Soviets. There had to be something in China as well. What else encouraged revisionism and a repudiation of the proper revolutionary way within the Chinese Communist Party? Old cultural feudal remnants, the things we didn't get rid of in the early 1950s, the things that are secretly surviving. This too is a direct legacy of the cultural tensions ever since the new culture movement and the May 4th legacy in the 19 teens and the 1920s. The idea that when there's something wrong with modern China, it's rooted in our culture in some way. This is clearly related to that legacy, although obviously in a very extreme form. So what sort of things of culture, what was the four olds? No, art, architecture, um, the people who produce those things, minority groups, minority nationalism—that's a relic of a capitalist society. We're not supposed to have nationalism anymore. We've transcended nationalism. Therefore, if the Uyghurs are asking for more autonomy, clearly that's a feudal remnant. How convenient! If the Tibetans are, you know, wanting more rights, that's a feudal remnant. Okay, countless cultural treasures would be destroyed. Now, the Forbidden City was off-limits, mostly. There was an invasion of the Forbidden City by Red Guards at one point, although they didn't do a ton of damage, and Zhou Enlai eventually had him kicked out. Um, and uh, for the two things that were definitely protected, totally off-limits, um, with the one exception of the Forbidden City, uh, was the Forbidden City, and the nuclear test site in Lap Noor uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, you know, those sort of things. The, the military secrets and the one cultural treasure of the nation that is above all others. Those were off-limits, basically. Everything else was fair game. You are, if you're a tourist today and, you know, except for the um, uh, Forbidden City or maybe the Temple of Heaven, you you, you know, many tourists, they want to visit cultural sites. I certainly do. You want to visit the local Buddhist, you know, monasteries or cave paintings or whatever it might be. Okay. Old statues from the old days. Um, Today, you'll end up finding, if you can read the fine print, you read that that plaque, you'll find out a lot of them are uh, reconstructions. They were rebuilt. They look beautiful now. And the reason they look so beautiful is because they were rebuilt in the last 20 to 30 years. Because they were burned down or destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. This is why Taiwan today, in its tourist brochures, will advertise itself as the last repository of traditional Chinese culture. They actually take the Cultural Revolution as a selling point. We didn't have this insane revolution that destroyed our cultural heritage. We still have authentic Chinese temples, Confucius temples, Buddhist temples, Taoist temples. We still have these things. Come to Taiwan if you want to see true Chinese culture. Because so much of it was destroyed in the Destroy the Four Old campaigns by ignorant 14-year-olds uh, marauding around the country, interpreting Mao Zedong's di- dictates however they wanted to. And then again, you had the valorization of the PLA. Embodied in the Feng cult. Feng, a thrifty ignoramus, proud to be read, and devoting his life to the masses and to the party until he dies a proletarian death of getting bonked on the head by a hunk of metal. Okay, now within the first year of all this violence and chaos, uh, Mao's basically achieved his goals. Okay, he wanted to cre- he wanted to destabilize the party, shake up his enemies, and have an excuse to attack many of them, and you know make sure some of them got under house arrest and died or committed suicide. An enshrine revolution, constant, continuous revolution, as the guiding principle of the state. If he could do that, then he could know that Mao Zedong thought, Mao Zedong himself, would never go out of fashion, because that plays to his strength. However, all this after a year and a half or so, um, once he achieves his goal, he finds it very inconvenient to having millions of 10 to 22-year-olds running around the country, having no school, attacking their moms and dads and teachers and anyone in a government office. That becomes fairly inconvenient after a while in case you couldn't have anticipated that. So what does Mao do? He betrays both of them. He betrays both the Red Guards he called upon to destroy his workers, uh, to to destroy his enemies, and the workers in factories who actually took his call to revolution seriously and tried to take over the means of production in their factories. He will betray both of them. First, The urban youth. The Red Guards. Okay? Those who are lucky. And I stress lucky because you think, oh, it can't get any worse. Oh, yes, it can. Those who were lucky get rustication, what's known as rustication and labor reform. Another way of saying it, the sent down youth. they will be known as a sent down youth. In 1967, 68, when Mao wants the young people to stop doing what he told them to do. First, he tries to reason with them. He he uh, broadcast announcements, Red Guards, you know, mission accomplished, lay down your arms, uh, let's start rebuilding society now, we achieved it, we got rid of all the parasites and the capitalist rotors in, in, w- w- within the party, now let's uh, get back to business. And they don't lay down their arms, they keep fighting each other, they don't listen to him, they keep on thinking that they're interpreting his message to keep on fighting and do what they want to do, because they've seized a certain amount of power now themselves, they don't want to give that up. When they killed people, when they displaced party bureaucrats, who, who took over th- those responsibilities? Oftentimes, it was Red Guards who rose to positions of political prominence. Mao telling you to stop doing what you're doing means that you lost everything that you've been fighting for. At one point, Mao realizes it's very serious. I think he's trying to fly into Wuhan. And as they're trying to land in Wuhan, he's realizing the Red Guards are shooting at each other. They've, they've, they've been given access to PLA guns and weapons. And it's a it's a civil war on the street between competing Red Guard factions. They're firing at each other. And Mao Zedong's uh, security guards say, We can't guarantee your safety if we land. You might get accidentally shot. And that really brings it home to him. Holy shit, what have I done? I've unleashed a force that I can't control now. And so what does he say? Let's send him to the countryside. Now he just wants to get rid of him, but he can't say, I just want to get rid of you. He has to have a lofty, revolutionary, legitimate reason to do this. So what does he say it's going to be? Uh, this is part two of your training now, of making revolution. Now you've made revolution. Now, what do you need to do to refine yourself? You need to do what we did. Go to the countryside. Go to the countryside, learn from the illiterate peasant masses. Those are the people who are the real repository of revolutionary potential. That's how we came to power. Now, you guys, if you really want to make revolution, you need to get out of the cities and go down and learn from the original revolutionaries, the peasants. And this is a shock. Some of them go willingly, many don't, and they're forced to go down. 17 million urban youths will be rusticated, sent down. What this means is that for anywhere from a couple years, in some cases up to 10 or 15 years, depending on when they're sent down and when they're able to get back into the cities, they're, they're separated from their family. They're not in school. They get no education. And they're living in primitive rural conditions. Many of these people later on say how shocked they were at the backbreaking poverty and primitiveness of rural areas that I cannot believe. We thought our country was, you know, advanced, glorious, wealthy. That's what the newspapers told us, at least. We went out to the countryside, and my God, we were shocked at how poor we still were. I couldn't believe it. But they also couldn't get back. And they couldn't get an education. This is why sometimes the, the, the 17 million urban youth who were sent down are referred to as the lost generation. The lost generation. Because they had no education. And if you couldn't get back until the late 70s, just because Mao dies in 76 doesn't mean all these youth are brought back immediately. You had to have connections. Uh, It was was tough to get back to the city. And some of them don't get back to the city in the early 1980s. And if you went that long without an education, and you missed out on the first couple years of the reform era, you're screwed. You're screwed. And you're not going to get a good job one day at all. So that's pretty sad. Okay. Um, Even sadder are the 400,000 Red Guards who refused to stop fighting, refused to lay down their weapons, and also refused to be rusticated and sent down to the rural areas. You know what happened to them? They were shot dead by the PLA. This is something that has only come out recently in the archives. And it's a sore subject. It's something that you don't really hear. Even though the Cultural Revolution can be talked about in certain ways in mainland China, unlike the Great Leap Forward, certain things about it are still censored heavily. Okay? Uh, Mao's role in a lot of what happened is censored heavily. So is the fact that Mao agreed to give the PLA the green light to shoot and kill 400,000 young Chinese youth who refused to stop doing what Mao told them to do. They were killed. In street battles with the PLA. What about the workers? I haven't talked too much about them. People who work in urban factories. Well, that's the heart of the proletariat. All right, That's a precious constituency. As we'll talk about in the next episode, when we talk about the legacy of the Mao years, we're going to see that despite all this chaos, in spite of all this Mao insanity, industrial production, economic growth, actually proceeds apace. Not bad. The whole time. Why? Because usually factories were insulated from what was going on. No matter how bad it was in the rest of the country, factories were the last place to feel the effects of the badness, because you don't mess with heavy with heavy industry. Right? You don't mess with the people who are producing the steel and the chemicals that will allow you to create you know nuclear bombs and missiles and artillery and all these sorts of things. You don't mess with that. okay? Um, unless. A few overzealous workers actually respond to Mao's calls during the Cultural Revolution and say, yeah, let's make revolution. These are older people. These are going to be people in their mid to late 20s and 30s and 40s now, okay? Not as susceptible to Mao's calls for revolution as were the the Red Guards who were in elementary school, junior high, and high school and college. However, some of them did. And there's one factory in Shanghai in which a man... Uh, a group of people in this factory, will take Mao's calls seriously. And they'll say, yeah, we're going to recreate the Paris Commune of 1871. We're going to take over the means of production, and the workers will rule themselves. And we're going to overthrow the party bureaucracy, this parasitic class. And they do. They take over. And what's Mao's response to this wonderful example of real revolutionary enthusiasm? In an industrial factory. I'm sorry. That's not what I meant. It's not for you guys. Okay. We can't have the party representatives kicked out of factories. No. That's not what I wanted to have happen. And he repudiates the Shanghai Commune. They call themselves the Shanghai Commune. And he repudiates it in early 1967. No genuine bottom-up initiative will be countenanced if it messes with the economic underpinnings of a heavy industry-oriented economy. And Mao repudiates the Shanghai Commune. The the purest distillation of Mao's continuous revolution. Um, He ends up saying, "No, no, 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 we're not going there. Because that doesn't help me crush my enemies within the party. It just disrupts economic production in the most valuable part of our economy. All right, now after this, after the Red Guards are sent down or killed, after the workers in the factories are suppressed and order is restored there, the last seven years, 69 to 76, this is when there's still a lot of stuff going on, okay? But it's mostly elite politics behind the scene in which you really see Mao doing things that are totally out of line with the revolutionary ideology that he's spouting. And you really realize, if you're paying attention to stuff, you're totally cynical and disillusioned by this point. You're thinking, my God, he made us act like we should all bo- truly believe in what he was saying. And then look what's going on behind the scenes. Him bickering with Lin Biao. Him making a reproachment with the United States, the greatest imperialist country ever. What the hell's going on? There's that. And then there's the institutionalization of Mao's revolutionary thought. In which he will try to institutionalize, make permanent mechanisms to bring illiterate peasants from the countryside and put them into positions of power to get them an education in universities and to put them in positions of urban power. All right, we'll talk about that that in a minute. First, uh, of the elite politics that are going on after 1969. After the initial fervor of the movement and Mao has achieved his goals, he starts to worry about Lin Biao. He thinks Lin Biao has got too much power. Okay, he's a possible threat. Mao starts talking about to other people as he travels through the country. He lets it be known that he's not too happy with Lin Biao. He thinks Lin Biao has overstepped some of his power, gotten too much power. um, And that uh, may be time for Lin Biao to uh, take a lower profile. Lin Biao starts hearing these rumors as Mao wants him to hear. um, And eventually he gets worried that a purge is coming. And his son... I forget his name, Lean something. Uh, his son, we now know because of a memoir written by his daughter, I believe. I I, remember, I, I read this many years ago. Uh, his son... Actually, no. Li Li Guo. I think it's Li Li Guo is his name. Lin Li Guo. Uh His son eventually kidnaps his father, thinking that Mao is about to move against their family and imprison them as counter-revolutionaries, kidnaps the father, who appears to be under the influence of drugs at the time, not totally certain what's going on. They get into, along I believe with Lin Biao's wife as well, they get into, they hijack a plane at the Beijing airport and attempt to fly to the Soviet Union to take refuge there. That's incredible, right? You couldn't, you couldn't write a screenplay for a movie that was this insane. People would say, no, this is too unbelievable. They wouldn't believe that stuff like this could happen. And they try to flee to the Soviet Union. And eventually the plane crashes somewhere and I believe it crashes somewhere in outer Mongolia which again, basically is Soviet jurisdiction. Okay. We now know, I also saw a recent report on this, that uh, details were revealed about the condition of the bodies when they were recovered. Is that it appears as though the pilot had a bullet in his head. And the flight plan of the airplane, what the radar suggested, was that previously it was thought that the plane fell, uh, ran out of fuel. It ran out of gas and crashed in outer Mongolia. Um, when in fact, what seems to have happened, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? I mean, if you ran out of gas, you would have landed. You wouldn't have just kept on flying, you ran out of gas, you're not that dumb. All right? What seems to happen is that the pilot didn't know where they wanted to go. And Lin Biao is a powerful person, so he just, you know, he flies the damn plane. And when he found out that they were going to flee to the Soviet Union... Apparently, the pilot thought this was such a betrayal, how could we, we seriously be doing this, that he started to turn the plane around to land in China. And at some point, as the bullet in the pilot's head would suggest, a scuffle ensued, ensued and he was shot. And we said, bad move to shoot the pilot. Oh yeah, I'm going to shoot the pilot. Who's going to fly the damn plane? And it crashed. Whatever happened, they're all dead. Okay? And you got to explain why Lin Biao is dead. To the public, because you can't hide that forever. L- Liu Shaoqi is easy to explain. He was enemy number one. He betrayed the party, capitalist rotor, revisionist, blah, blah, blah. Lin Biao was your next number two. Head of the PLA. Creator of the Little Red Book. The Lin Feng cult. Lin Feng. That's not his name. Le- the Lei Feng cult. <laughs> it gives uh, Lei Feng his own surname of Lin. That would be good. Um, you know, you, how do you explain this guy's death? So they basically just explained it the way it was. He too betrayed Mao and was going to flee to the Soviet Union. Well, you can only do this so many times before people start calling bullshit, right? You can only do this so many times. And most people start to realize at this point, it's the Lin Biao incident that makes everyone realize this is bullshit. They're just saying whatever they want to tell us. None of this is really real. They don't really mean any of this sort of stuff. And at the same time, Mao's pursuing more positive relations with ships with the United States. And that's just hard geopolitics. This is another thing that divided him and Lin Biao. Lin Biao thought that pursuing a rapprochement with the United States was a betrayal of the revolution of communism. And Mao was saying, we need a counterweight to the Soviet Now that we're enemies with the Soviet Union, we need another counterweight. The United States is perfect. And he always secretly admired the Americans. He secretly hated Stalin, by pub- but publicly paid tribute to the Soviets. He secretly loved the Americans while publicly vilifying them. Now he's finally going to make it all right and publicly embrace the Americans too. And this story is much better well known. Uh, inviting the American ping pong team over o- over when they're in, in uh Japan, Kissinger's secret meetings in Pakistan and whatnot with Zhou Lai arranging the meeting, uh, but it's all, it's hard geopolitics. We just need a new counterbalance to the to, to the world order after the Sino-Soviet split. That, that's it. That's it. And with all this Lin Biao incident, the reproach with the United States seems to be the ultimate betrayal of everything Mao had been saying in public. Later on in the 1980s, there's this wonderful book called Chun Village, uh, in which anthropologists and socialists were going out into the countryside interviewing peasants, asking about what they thought of what, you know, the shitstorm that they just lived through for the past 15 years. And I have the, there's this wonderful quote that the anthropologist wrote down. I'm going to read the quote from one of these peasants from Chun Village. He said, quote, When Liu Shaoqi was dragged down, we'd been very supportive. At that time, Mao Zedong was raised very high. He was the red sun and whatnot. But the Lin Biao affair provided us with a major lesson. We came to see that the leaders up there could say today that something is around. Tomorrow, that it's flat. We lost faith in the system. Even an illiterate peasant lost faith when they heard about Lin Biao. It's too much to believe. First Liu Shaoqi, now Lin Biao. This is just elite court politics as usual. All right. Now... The other thing that's going on for the last seven years, from 69 to 76 until Mao finally croaks and they can start to slowly repudiate the Cultural Revolution and pick up the pieces, you have the institutionalization of continual revolution. Jiang Qing and her three allies from Shanghai, two of them are in her cultural group, uh, Zhang Chunqiao, um, is it Wang Hongyun, um, and then a fourth guy was the leader of the Shanghai Commune from the factory that Mao repudiated, he sort of as a compromise, he lifted the lead, the ringleader of the Shanghai Commune, um, these four people were sort sort of in uh, Jiang Qing's uh, circle of influence. First, you need to institutionalize their prominent position. Uh, Jiang Qing and Jiang Chunqiao and the others, they'll later be known as the Gang of Four and they'll be blamed for pretty much everything. Um, they form what's known as a central cultural, central cultural Revolution Group, which effectively replaces the central government and is the new policy-making body. Uh, does all the paperwork and issues the policies and pronouncements and what's going to happen. You have that. That's the new central government the Central Cultural Revolution Group. Jiang Qing taking advice from Mao Zedong and her supporters. Two, in the provinces, you'll have the creation of what are known as revolutionary committees. All governing bodies, anything that is responsible for uh, government decisions out in the provinces, they're now composed of three elements. You must have first a, a, a representative of a mass revolutionary organization that existed for the first three years. All right. Usually that's a Red Guard representative. All right. Remember, you have to have compromises and face-saving measurements. Not all Red Guards are killed. Not all Red Guards are sent down. Some of them are co-opted to take a governing position, a respectable position of power as part of the Revolutionary Committee. You got to have one of them Two, a rehabilitated party cadre. Someone who had been struggled against for the first couple of years, but was not deemed so horrible that they're beyond rehabilitation. Someone like Deng Xiaoping. But this is the provinces, so it's less prominent cadres. All right? They're going to be one of the members of the three elements of the new revolutionary committee. And then three, a representative from the PLA. The third representative. And this one has the real power. This is the one who really, you know, what they want is what's going to go. Okay? So the revolutionary committees are the new provincial Government, where the central cultural revolution group is a new central government. And and you can see here, the revolutionary committees are an attempt to have a space-saving measure that brings together all the disparate elements that Mao unleashed during the first three years. And then also, new primary and secondary education systems for those in the cities. Primary schools now will teach only a handful of very circumscribed ideological texts all about Mao Zedong thought this, Mao Zedong thought that. You're learning very little Uh, serious content of any sort. I have, you know, textbooks from the 1970s uh, that I've, I think I read a few of the excerpts before. Um, The ones uh, that are from the later part of the Cultural Revolution are really sterile. There's like this one medical textbook that I bought when I was in China from the 1970s, and it's a bunch of doctors saying, you know, uh, we discovered a cure for herpes uh, by uh, embodying Mao Zedong thought better than anyone else has ever done before. I mean, that's really insane stuff, the way you had to talk about these sort of things. All right. Universities had a major change for the last seven years. All right. University enrollment itself was reduced by two thirds. Mao didn't think very highly of universities and higher education. This is where the technocrats came from, who challenged his power. All right, He's a self-made man. You can be a self-made man too. At one point, he even, uh, there, 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 there's this campaign in which Mao is arguing that Confucius was a self-made man. He never had any formal schooling. And he did all kinds of things. He 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 herded sheep. He learned to play a musical instrument. All you know, he was an accountant. All before he became a famous you know administrator. All right, a jack of all trades, self-taught. We can do that too. You don't need a formal university education. And then the remaining one third was dominated by illiterate peasants who were brought in from the countryside, sort of like a, a a rural affirmative action, not a racial affirmative action, but a rural affirmative action, to bring them onto. College campuses. Members of the PLA would get prefer- preferential treatment as well. Soldiers and peasants now dominated universities. You can imagine what the old urban intellectual bourgeoisie thought of that. I'll leave that unspoken. <laughs> okay. Um, in the medical sphere, you had the training of one million so-called barefoot doctors. Now I was saying, you know, the revolution is about the masses, catering to the masses. We have an urban medical establishment that caters only to rich urbanites and party bureaucrats who have privileges. We need to reform our medical system and have less years of training. We don't. We can't have medical school that goes on for 15 years. Good God, we don't have time for that. Let's, 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 let's give our doctors two or three years of basic medical training and then send them out into the countryside to serve the people. Far less education, Not quite as good medical care, not even close to as good medical care. But more of it, more coverage, certainly. Everyone's going to get some level of of medical care. These are known as barefoot doctors. Okay. They also had what were known as the May 7th cadre schools. You get all kinds of weird things, you know, factories that are named like, you know, July 1st factory, you know, cotton factory or whatnot. They're usually named after some momentous day uh, in which, you know, something happened in the history of socialism. All right. I always forget what they are. I have no idea what happened on May 7th. I'm sure you could look it up really easily. Uh, the May 7th cadre schools, a means of which you get officials, party bureaucrats, and urban intellectuals in the, in the cities to get out of the cities. We saw this with the Red Guards, the sent down youth. There's a lot more people you'd like to get out of the cities, a lot more critics. You want those urban intellectuals gone, whatever ones still exist, um, and you want you know low-level bureaucratic functionaries uh, to go to the countryside as well. And so the May 7th cadre schools was an institutionalized way of sending these people in the cities who weren't, who weren't just red guards out to do rural labor, hard rural labor for two years in order to quote unquote prevent them from becoming divorced from the masses, <laughs> right? So you can see by the mid-1970s, all right, more morale is low everywhere. There's widespread disillusionment. The golden years, the honeymoon, if there ever was one, it's definitely over by this point. Whatever the cause, by whatever means, whether it's Mao's fault or not, the communist leadership has led us to disaster. When Mao dies, finally, finally, in 1976, the new leadership needs to find a new reason for the continued rule of a communist party that is largely morally and politically bankrupt by this point. Think of the analogy with Taiwan when we talked about the history of Taiwan. After Taiwan loses, ironically, not ironically, it makes total sense. uh, At the exact same time, Taiwan loses basically its United Nations representation as as China, right? They then have to think of a new reason for why we exist. And that's when they start leaning towards democracy. Oh, free open China as a model for what China is going to do one day. What's mainland China going to do? Communism, socialism failed. It failed. There's no way around it. By 1976, it failed spectacularly, violently, traumatically. Now what? How do you justify the Chinese Communist Party still being in power? Same situation, the same question that they faced on Taiwan. What, what, What justifies the continued rule? this whole charade that we're the ones in charge. Okay? And that's what we're gonna talk about in China since Mao, in episode 41 of Beyond Hua Xia.